Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Kirk Dieter is the Vice President of Media at Trout Unlimited and the editor of Trout Magazine. He's also an editor-at-large for Field & Stream and the editor-in-chief of Angling Trade. To say he's busy is an understatement. The workload isn't new to Kirk. He's been working in the fly fishing industry since 2000 and is no stranger to the long hours of journalism. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Kirk to get the inside scoop on his industry magazine, his thoughts on diversity, and whether we're loving our fisheries to death. Well, I kind of grew up a lot of places. I, I was born in Ohio, in Toledo, Ohio, and I lived there till I was seven or eight years old, then moved to Pennsylvania for a year, and then Wisconsin. That's kind of where I, when people ask me where I grew up, I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up right on the lake in Lake, lake Michigan and uh, lived there until halfway through high school. And then I finished high school back in the Philadelphia area at Germantown Academy and uh, went to college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, then moved back to Philadelphia and then moved to Colorado 20 years ago. So I've actually lived more in Colorado than any, anywhere else in my life. But uh, it's kind of been good fishing-wise for me because I grew up in different fishing spots in the upper Midwest and then the Pennsylvania Spring Creeks and then out to the Rockies and so forth. So I've, I'm kind of a mutt of fishing. Wild and moving. Was it your dad? Yeah, my dad was very successful in you know, corporate jobs. Uh, he, was, uh, he worked for Johnson Wax and Johnson Outdoors, actually. And uh, he worked also uh, at M&M Mars, the candy company. So oh, right. we were the most popular house on the block for Halloween. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so now he's, in, he's still working. And my mom and dad and my brother have an agency in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm kind of the black sheep of the family. And, but, you know, in a positive way, we all kid each other but, uh, and get along great. But I'm the one who turned into a media person. And theirs is a advertising and marketing agency. So we kind of sit on opposite sides of the of the table. Okay. Did he fish? My dad didn't fish. Um, ironically, I, I, I fished a lot when I was little, but I was a gear fisherman, you know, and living right on Lake Michigan, I would ride my bike over and throw Johnson spoons off the piers and catch coho salmon and such. And that was cool. But, uh, then I actually took up fly fishing to impress a girl. What? Uh, Explain. Yeah. Explain yes. the story. Yeah. So I was in at school at Michigan and I was dating a girl and she said, Hey, you know, invited me up to her cabin for one summer in between you know, semesters and so forth. I, I went up there and uh, her dad put me in waders right away and sent me down the river with a fly rod, figuring that, <laughs> you know, he's going to test me out. So I went down river and uh, about three hours later, her mom sent her on a rescue mission and had packed a sandwich in a little brown paper sack and an apple and a Coke and stuff. And she comes walking down the, the stream and finds me in the stream and I'm fishing just as happy as I can be and catching fish. And, and I looked up and I said the, the fateful words, do I have to come back yet? At which point she just put the sandwich down, slunk back, 
back to the cabin and told her dad what I had said, and he figured that I was the one. And Did you marry her? Yeah, we've yeah. been married 30 years now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I took up the fly fishing to impress my now wife of 30 years, Sarah. Did he get you into it then? Was was he yeah, a part my, of your... my father-in-law was my fishing fly fishing mentor. Right. Yeah, so he, he's, uh, he passed away a few years ago, but... Uh, it was a really great thing for me to have such a nice bond and a relationship with my in-laws. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just welcoming, and and he, Fred, was a mentor to me, and uh, you know one of my best friends as well as my father-in-law, which was kind of cool. That's super cool. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, well, I'm sorry he's gone. Yeah, and it, well, you know, I think of him all the time when I fish, and uh, I have we still have the family cabin, and uh, it's on the Baldwin River in Michigan. And it's where the first brown trout was planted in the United States in 1884. You can walk to the spot where, theoretically, the, the railroad trestles moved over the centuries since then. But it's the same general vicinity right upstream from where our cabin is. And uh, my first fish on a fly was a brown trout. And now it's kind of ironic that I've been to so many places in the world chasing that same fish. Yeah. Now, just to give the listeners some context, you have been everywhere in the world. Well, what, not everywhere. What, but like what, is your, what is your job? What do you call yourself? Well, now I'm the vice president of Trout Unlimited, and I'm in charge of their media. So I edit their magazine. I work on the website, the digital stuff, uh, and when we do annual reports, things like that. I'm also an editor-at-large still with Field & Stream. Which yeah, you've was, done that for a while, right? Yes. It's been about 15 years, and uh, haven't been a lot of stories lately with them, but still, you know, love the team and, and work with them and talk to them and all that stuff. And I'm also the editor of Angling Trade Magazine, which is the business-to-business magazine in fly fishing. So That's also been a while. Yeah, that's been about, oh gosh, 2006, something like that. So, yeah, it's uh, you have to have a lot of irons in the fire, as you know, in this business. And so I've had a lot of irons in the fire over the years, and they've taken me as a writer an editor to some really cool spots. Yeah. So. so is that the plan in college? You know, well, I I think I went to college freshman year and I wanted to be a doctor oh. and flunked my first math test and then quickly became an English major. Right. <laughs> and uh, out, out of college, I uh, worked at a newspaper and I really kind of jammed on the writing as much after school as I did uh, in school. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was a sports reporter at a local paper in Pennsylvania. I can I, see that actually. Yeah, I like I like that stuff. And yeah, wrote a book on drugs and sports when I was uh, like twenty two years old. I, I ghost wrote it for Doctor Robert Voy, who's the chief medical officer of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Was that your first book? Yeah, it was. It was a it was a great exercise for me to you know learn how to organize and think about something that's two hundred plus pages long instead of a five-page term paper or something like that. How many books have you written at this point? Oh, geez. Um, well, I wrote that one. I, th- I think last count, I, I, <laughs> I, I kind of co-author things. And so uh, counting the things that I've co-authored with my cousins and cast work and Tideline and did the Little Red Book of Fly Fishing with Charlie Myers and I edited some things. I think I'm at seven books now. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it is. I've got another one in the works, too. Because yeah, you're not... How old are you? I'm 53. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't, time, I don't feel just goes, time just goes by so fast. I like, know, I just it does. 
to me, you're not in your fifties. Well, thank you. That's <laughs> that's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day. So it's nine a.m. Nine a.m. It's a good start to the day. So what? Talk to me then about, or if you wouldn't mind, can you please tell me how you got into the industry? Yeah. So I was. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I I was doing a book. I was back east and and working at the family agency at the time in the 90s. And uh, I love fishing. So I convinced my wife to let me write a book with her cousin, Andrew Steckety. And we got Andrew's little sister, also her cousin, Liz Steckety, to take the photos. And we launched this book project called Castwork. And we went throughout the West profiling guides and taking black and white photos and focused on how the landscapes and the rivers shaped the people and the people shaped the rivers and so forth. And it was like a PhD education in fishing because I would go and hang with Terry Gunn for three or four days. And then I would go and we do like two trips a year. So this took four or five years and eventually we found a publisher. And so we actually had to make a book. It was more than just a hobby at that yeah, point. You're so, obligated. Yeah. So we did that. And, uh, Book came out, didn't make any money, but it was kind of a garage band thing. It was people. There were enough that caught the attention, and I was hoping to do more and more outdoor writing. But I was at the end of my rope. I, we had moved to Colorado so I could fish and do this book and so forth, and was going to take a corporate job back east. And I was at the end of the line, end of my money, and I sent the book and a resume to Field and Stream magazine. And Sid Evans was the editor at the time, and I rode the train in to New York City and met, met him at Park Avenue. And here he says, Dieter, how many days a year do you go fishing out there in Colorado? I said, about 150 days a year. That counts, you know, just walking down to the pond after a long day and just making a few casts. And he said, why would you want to come into New York and, you know, ride the train in and work in a cubicle here in Manhattan? I said, because it's field and stream. It's the Yankee pinstripes of the outdoors industry. And he said, well, why don't you just stay out there in Colorado and write stories for Oh, food. thank goodness, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the nicest thing anybody's ever done for me professionally. So that got me in, and then one thing, one story led to another, and, and uh, you know, we've maintained all these connections with the guides that were in those books, and we started the trade magazine uh, several years ago. Oh, you ago. started that? Yeah, we started, it was fly fishing trade, and then uh, transitioned over to become angling trade just a little couple years out later, we were thinking about going all fishing, you know, so that's when we all angling trade instead of fly fishing. But we never made that jump. We just stayed with fly fishing. And um, it's been great. It's been a, a cool way to stay in tune with the people and uh, the products and all that stuff. So was there an industry magazine before? There was years ago and, you know, like in the 80s and 90s, and then it lapsed for five years. And, and Casey Walsh approached us and said, hey, you guys may be interested in doing a trade magazine again. So we said, yeah, sure. It's been 15 years. What does an industry magazine write about? I'm assuming it's not all gear reviews. No, gear's, gear's an important part of it. But in this day and age, we have a lot of issues, right? Like pro deals. Who's a pro? <laughs> right? Is everybody a pro, right? Let me sip my coffee here for a second. <laughs> so that's a lightning rod issue. Um, but to, like this magazine is available to the general public. It's not just... It, well, we, we only circulate it to, to the people who make, manufacture, sell retailers, fly shops, guides, lodges, those to, you know, people who make a living in fly fishing is who gets the print issue. But, you know, yeah, anglingtrade.com is online and anybody can hop on and see what we're talking about. 
Well, we talk about environmental issues, you know, Pebble Mine. We talk about direct sales. We talk about felt and aquatic invasive species. I've read some great articles on it, but I just want people to, especially if the general public isn't getting their hands on it, I want them to know what it is. Well, that's cool. And and, uh, we are going to do more consumer-facing stuff. I think we want to do more gear reviews, dive in, so average angler can just see what we really think about this new rod and this new reel and so on and so forth. So, How big is the fly fishing industry? Uh, that's a great question. Um, they'll tell you, it depends on how you, how you count people, right? So if you count someone who just buys a license and goes on a trip, but they only fish once, but they say, I'm going fly fishing, mm-hmm. it's several million people in the United States. If you ask the manufacturers, however, who are selling product, you know, how big is their market that they're really drilling down on? It's about between one and a half and three million people. Okay. That would be considered aficionados of the sport. Fly fishing specifically. Fly fishing specifically. What about fishing? $48 billion. Big. Wow. Yeah. So fly fishing is just over a billion dollars all in. So it's it's smaller than Budweiser. You know, it's it's a small little yeah. niche. I hear people say that fly fishing is, or the fly fishing industry is smaller than the toy train industry. Yeah, that's right. Is that's that right. true? Yes. And other, th- other sports that you wouldn't think are are bigger, but like bird watching. There was a New York Times story on Monday that talked about fly fishing being the new bird watching, which was kind of odd. But did, did you find that story accurate? I thought it was, I, you know, I, I'm one of those who believes any press is good press, right? So if people want to make fly fishing cool for whatever reason they make it cool, that's fine with me. Um, and I'm not, not going to criticize the, the writer or whatever. I, I thought it was nice and well attempted and you know, maybe not my cup of tea or how I'd have written it or described some things, but people come at this sport from different perspectives, and that's totally cool with, with me. So so you're all for growth of the sport, obviously. I'm for – that's another question. Mm. That's a great question. You've got good questions today. <laughs> um, I'm for responsible growth of the sport. I don't think we need to have more warm bodies just to have warm bodies. If you go to the boat ramp on the Bighorn any day now, there's no shortage of people. And I think that's actually a hole in the bucket for someone who was really passionate about you know, fishing and then they get in, in the crowded situations. And yeah, you can hike. And if, you got, if you're motivated, you can get off the beaten path and you can find – we have so much water. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a cop-out to say that it's too much. But on the other hand – you know, there's a, a boat parade on the Missouri. There's a boat parade on the upper Colorado. And it's just, you know, if someone wants to pull off and uh, fish dry flies and have a little solitude, it's getting harder to, to do that. And a lot of us started fly fishing for that reason. That's right. You know, that's, a, that's my happy time when I'm in the river. I, I don't really care about pulling on fish as much anymore as I do about looking around and feeling the water on my legs and, you know, the, the whole sounds and sights and occasionally a good fish take would help. You know, yeah, like nice. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, you know, so. But I, it is hard to watch, you know, when you want to grow the sport, but at the same time, it's you see a direct impact in your own happiness on the river, right? That's right. So I think 10 years ago, we were all panicked in this industry and we were like, oh, we got to grow the sport. I we mean, that's grow. all that they talked about. Grow it, grow it, grow it, grow yeah. it. Yeah. And we kind of sold our souls, I think, a little bit for that. And we 
created this, you know, production fishing, and I, I don't want to, you know, have the hate mail of people who think, you know, I, go ahead and fish with your bobber and your weighted nymphs rig, and that's cool. But I never, ever can use that stuff. Go out for a day and hook some fish, and totally cool. And It's like Skagit lines on, on the two-handed rod. I that's mean, right. You know, it used to be really difficult that's with, right. with the lines that they had, but now you can go fishing for a day. I mean, winter steelhead fishing with a spay rod for a day? If it's your first day and catch a fish, that's unheard of. That's absurd. That's crazy. But it happens. Yeah, for sure it does. And that's credit to the guides and the techniques and the and the equipment that we have and all those things. You know, it's well thought out. But, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that just growth for the sake of growth is – I think now – Maybe the buzzword should be quality engagement. Why was there such a panic back then to get everyone into it? Well, the economy tanked in 2008, and a lot of these companies dried up. A lot of shops. That's where the attrition started. We had the boom after a river runs through it, and the tech boom, and the, the collision of money and Californians who like to fish and moving into the Rockies, and people from all over the country. The popularity took off, and then... Uh, Things slowed down and, and people got tired of the fishing and didn't have the disposable incomes as they did before and everything contracted for a while. And uh, there was some real worry about whether some of these major manufacturers would survive, let alone the fly shops. You know, Back in the day, we would send angling trade to 600 fly shops. Now, truthfully, maybe half of that number. Oh, so it didn't recover. Well, you know, the, the, the herd was culled. You know, and I think that there are some amazingly strong and popular fly shops now. But the the ones who survived tended to be the the real fly shops that sold flies that were by a river, and people would go in and stop and buy a dozen flies on their way to fish, or the places that were super lifestyle and uh, people just like to hang out there. But the ones that went away were the ones that were attached to the strip mall and so forth, and and that's sad. A lot of mom and pops. Bit the dust, so to speak. So. Yeah, I saw it. I mean, the shop I worked at went under, and it was also part of one of those strip malls. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bummer. But um, like it's Starbucks now or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. But so, do you think that the sport would have recovered organically? Or I mean, everyone was saying we need to grow the sport because being a woman, they were like, we're going to do it through you. Right. And, and getting th- that, that participation rate. That's right. Um, and it happened at the same time as social media. And I often wonder if the industry would have just recovered on its own with social media without us having to push it so hard? I think probably, you know, at the end of the day, I think that fly fishing is in- inherently cool. It's a fun sport. I mean, we're all nerds. We we, th- we think it's cool. I- I'm going to stick with that. But like, no, it, it, it is, if, it's cool. Right. If it's in your blood or you just, if it flips your switch, it's going to flip your switch. And as we struggle or endeavor to have more diversity, which I think is very important for fly fishing, um, very grateful for the work that you've done in terms of women in the sport. Thanks. And, you've and, always been supportive. Thank you. I noticed. Well, it was important to me. And I, I think that it, and you carried the torch really well. So uh, Thanks. keep doing it. And uh, I think that by and large, uh, you know, those are important endeavors to keep aiming for diversity. People of different ethnicities, people of different ages, people of you know, backgrounds. That's really important because... If you have that kind of fabric in your community, it's stronger, right? It's uh, many different fibers make a stronger community and, and sport. And, uh, you know, I think that our days are numbered if we don't do that. And the, the aging baby boomer white male demographic 
still dominates the sport, but it, it doesn't. And the world. And the world. To be fair. <laughs> but it's funny, you know, and I have to mention this on a few episodes now, but I really do believe that we could do a better job of being more diverse. Do you guys ever go after other races? Can you do that? Or nowadays, is that politically incorrect to try to bring other races into your sport? Oh, I think, well, RBFF is Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation is doing a tremendous job. So how are they doing it? Because it makes me very uncomfortable to even talk about it, let alone actually actively pursue it. Well, I think engaging those opinion leaders in those communities and and get, I think it's just a matter of opportunity and, and access and showing people what it's all about, taking it to them taking the sport to them, taking it to their communities, teaching them different ways of fishing for different species. RBFF has done a good job, especially in the Hispanic community, yeah. in the, and especially in the southern parts of the country. And it's mostly gear fishing, but we've seen a lot of growth in fly fishing as well. And, and it's kind of a near and dear subject to me because my son is adopted. He's from Guatemala. So what part of Guatemala? He's from... He's from um, Puerto de San Jose, which is where the sailfish uh, fishing is all. Yeah, that's based. right. It's great. Yeah, it's also a really rough part of the world. It's a really rough part of the world, and he's been back to Guatemala. We took him, but to to Cal on the north side of the country. And one of my dreams is to take him back to where he was actually born and go sail fishing with him and show him around. And he'll he'll. I'm sure explore that. He's a good angler. You know, he's he's into all that stuff. So, but anyway, back to the point. It having that experience in my life. You know, I was I'm part Guatemalan right now. You know, so, and I'm sensitive to some of the issues. And it was sad. We have to send him off. We sent him off to college. And uh, but say, you know, this is really right around the time of the El Paso shooting at the Walmart and so forth. And I said, you know, you got to be aware of what's going on in this country. There's a lot right. of kooky things going on. And you just need to be aware and take care of yourself. And, and you know, we worry about him all the time. Um, I wish that there would be more tolerance all the way around in this country of different cultures and different people. And and I think fishing is actually a really warm and happy spot where that can happen. And to the extent that we can facilitate that, that's becoming a higher and higher priority in my life later on in uh, my angling career. You know, I'm, I'm focused more on things like conservation and I want to <clears throat> do more with diversity and I want to help people get leg up in this industry and I want to help young writers and photographers and filmmakers and all that. So, Yeah. Oh, well, keep me posted on how you do it. And just for people listening, because I am contacted by quite a few people who are, um, you know, the minority and they make it very clear that they don't feel welcome. And it's the sort of thing where that really pains me. And I didn't realize just how disconnected I was to the whole problem of, you know, of having these people feel left out until I went to actually go and find a solution. And then I realized I don't even know where to start. Like, what is my, just, and I hope people listening can reach out to me and help me. I mean, what do I say? You know, I, I don't, I don't know all the answers. <laughs> it's a sticky wicket. And I think you have to listen. Obviously, you know, my mom's always told me I was born with two ears and one mouth for a reason. So, uh, listen and, uh, ask what they want. As an editor of the magazine, I, I have to be responsive to my audiences, and I want to try to show some of the diversity and so forth. So I ask what they like to read. And we go out of our way, for example, to instead of just doing a magazine that highlights women anglers, we have women anglers who are our editors and writers and contributors and making the content of the magazine. And I think we need to 
evolved that way along racial lines and ethnic lines and the, the whole schmear. Well, here, I can ask you this. I'm sorry to cut you off, but you're the perfect person to ask. See, for me, it's not the listening that's hard. It's the first line, hi, my name is April. And then what do I say? Do I pretend like it has nothing to do with the fact that they're a minority? And then just say, hi, ladies, I'd love to take you fishing. So let me out, let me turn this, let me spin this to you. You trying to speak to a woman in the industry, mm-hmm. say, 20 years ago, whenever, mm-hmm. before it was really popular. Let's say you wanted to speak to a woman and clearly you wanted to speak to her because she was a woman. How would you open that conversation? Gee, uh, to be honest with you, I would ask my wife for a little counsel going in or some female friends who I was comfortable with and would tell me if I was full of beans or, or whatnot. And I, I think in all of this conversation, the important thing and how I've found a little comfort in this zone is that you have to realize that it's not an end destination. There's no deliverable. Like if you say to yourself, we want X number of participants or what percentage and so forth by this year, that's great. That's a goal. But really the important part is the process and just being in that, just floating in that river, Right. It doesn't matter. You're going to screw things up. It's just like fishing or boating or going down the river. You're going to goof. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to offend somebody by accident. But you're going with the flow. Sure. And you're trying to point in the right general direction, and you're giving it your all. That's all you can do. Right? Okay. Well, I will. Hopefully, I get some direction from people on here. Maybe they can help offer some advice. I hope so. Coming up, Kirk and I continue our conversation. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Poster Burner. Taking photos has never been easier, yet most of us just leave our photos to take up space on our phones. Personally, a lot of my photos never see a printer, leaving photos of my daughter and fish of a lifetime to get lost in the archives. The truth is that printing photos can be daunting, but they can also be really expensive. Poster Burner takes those special pictures and turns them into posters and canvas prints for your home, decals and banners for your business, custom cases for your phone, and much more. With Christmas around the corner, Poster Burner is offering a 10% off discount to Anchored listeners. Just go to posterburner.com forward slash anchored and create customized, meaningful gifts at reasonable prices. That discount applies to every type of print they offer, so it's a great way to get stocked up on printed imagery for work or home. Again, just head on over to posterburner.com forward slash anchored. Now let's talk about the industry that I do know today, (laughs) which is a very, you know, I haven't been in this industry as long as you have, but I've been, I've been in it long enough to watch it change. Sure. What, let's just go for it. You want to hit those topics. Yeah. We'll just, we'll pick through the one at a time. All right. So I think the fly shop, I, I I wouldn't open a fly shop today if I had the money to do so. It's a tough spot to be in. Uh, the ones who are doing it and are successful and have a good location and a good client base are going to be fine, I think. They're still gatekeepers. They're, they're gatekeepers insofar as they're the ones who met out the knowledge and the advice. And the guides are important gatekeepers and all that. But we also live in a day and age now where people can access all sorts of information with the but, you know, pushing the button on their phone. We don't need to call the shop to find out what's hatching on the upper Delaware River right now. And that's the same in media. You know, the magazines are pressured. There's a million people who are, you know, blogging in their basement and so forth, which is totally cool. It's harder for the consumer to wade through some of that stuff and find 
real good quality content. So I think that pressures the ones who are legit to just really up their game to stand stand out, and it's hard to do. But um, there are a, a good numbers who who are successful at doing that. The manufacturers, um, I think. The strong ones are, are doing fine, but they're you know it's obvious that they're looking at other channels for revenue. You know, let's just call it like it is. If you're a pro, if you're on a pro staff and you get forty percent off or fifty percent off, the manufacturer is going to make the same money. You know, because the, they'll they're selling it at fifty percent to the shop. So who's cut out of the deal? The shop. Yeah. Right. So there's going to be a reckoning on that and the redefinition of the relationships between manufacturers and shops between manufacturers and media and the ad channels and how they get reviewed and and if they do their own media and so on and so forth i think people in some of these companies as far as marketing is concerned marketing's a totally different game now than it was 10 years ago just because of the internet yeah i think because of the internet and because of their ability to produce their own content. So were there agencies before? I mean, I've always remembered the, the, these companies having having agencies. Yeah, and they still have agencies, but their agencies are coaching them on social media and experiential marketing, um, ways to connect with consumers where they are, creating content, producing their own content, producing video. But the content is, it's getting harder and harder to find something unique. That's right. And as a content creator, it's getting harder and harder for me to do something unique. Sure. Do you feel like we're diluting it or it's become diluted? Oh, I think it's definitely, some of it's definitely diluted. But I think, you know, the the strong writers transcend. I mean, it's important to be a a good writer. Um, Whether you're writing an email or a blog or a book. Right. You know, the words matter. And, uh... There are some who string those words together really, really well, and I think that they can transcend. And there are some who, who um, you know, attempt, and that's it's cool. I'm, and I'm, like I said earlier, I like to give people a shot. I like to find young writers. I want to encourage them. But it's an evolution too, right? Like yeah, I look back pay your dues, at my right? old writing, and I just it like it pains me to read old writing. It's I mean it has to be an evolution. Did you have you evolved as a writer? I've changed a little bit as a writer, but yeah, I. I've always been kind of a lean writer in terms of I don't like to use a lot of words and I try to get to the point right away. Like a Hemingway. Yeah, well, not that, that's a tall that's a tall <laughs> order, but I do I do, I kind of found my voice early and I stick with it and uh I read some of the stuff that I wrote 20 years ago and I'm like wow, that was pretty good. Or, or Oh, really? Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Was, you were lucky back then. But uh, I think I have I had more enthusiasm in my writing when I was younger and just kind of an eager, char- hard charging. And I, I've tempered a little bit and seen a little bit more, and I've got a lot more to contrast and compare. Mm-hmm. And I've gone, I had mentors, many mentors. Charlie Myers was a mentor. He was the outdoors editor at the Denver Post. John Merwin at Field and Stream. Uh, many others who would take me aside and say, hey, you know, you did this right, you did this wrong. So, pointing me in the right direction. And I still have some mentors to do that with me, which is great. But now I try to mentor some of the other writers that I work with. And mm-hmm. and uh, it's important to... Charlie Myers used to always say, every angler and every author should endeavor to replace himself or herself. He's right. Right? Yeah. So I think he certainly fulfilled that bill with many writers. And uh, so I think it's important for me to try to do the same. 
Now, writing in magazines or catalogs or even papers back in the day, they would have run out of ideas too, right? I mean, you just, you, you open magazines today and it's like, I read that article 10 years ago. Oh, I've read that article 15 years ago. Mm. It feels like a lot of the, sa- the same articles are just being regurgitated. Or not the same articles, but the same information is being regurgitated into different w- words. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, how many different ways can you talk about fishing six <sighs> Tip it, right? it. I can't. I just. I can't wrap my head around how people can keep it. Can stay enthusiastic about it. Or the cast. Or the cast. Yeah. I mean, I like casting, and it's it's an art form. And I have some really close friends. I was just up at the School of Trout on the Henry's Fork, and I improved my casting by listening to the other instructors, John Jersek and others who really helped me. Super cool. But I think there's a lot of people who have made a lot of money over the years by making that cast so complicated. Same with a golf swing, right? right. They're going to give you a physics lesson or write a 200-page book on the cast. And it, it, some people eat that up, and it's important. But I I always thought, I come from the school where I don't care how you get get it there. Give me a good drift. Uh, have fun. You know, Don't like have nightmares about your tailing loop. I mean, yeah. it's just life's too short for that stuff. Right. So I think, yeah, I, I get a little fatigued. With uh, some of the same old, same old. Well, it's happening now in fishing videos. Remember when they were really exciting? Yeah, right. And like I went to the Drake Awards last night and I just, they're, they're amazing and I love them and I love the story. It'd be nice if I could hear the story you right, know, at, right. at the awards, but uh, I just feel like I've seen the same jumps and the same drone shots and I feel like we become desensitized. And, and I actually had a really great conversation with a gentleman some time, some time ago about this. He put it this way. So, do you remember your first bonefish? Yeah. How big was it? Oh, little. Did, did you care? Two, no. Because you loved that bonefish. Oh, absolutely. How many bonefish had you seen before? I mean, I'm sure you'd seen them in magazines and stuff. Yeah. But did you have them constantly being flashed in front of your face on social media? Or obviously you weren't on the, the internet, didn't exist. But did you have them constantly flashed in your face being told that a 10-pounder is what you should strive to be catching? And, no, not back when I was starting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so he was. he had said, you know... In his opinion, what it does is it in your head it, it paints a, an image of what a great fish is, or you know what the fish that you should be striving for. And suddenly, that fish that you were so excited about doesn't it doesn't seem quite as significant. And and I could, I get his point. I think that is damaging. I think you're right. I think I think also it's trying to think of analogies, but like you know, if, if every golf shot you saw was a 300 yard drive right down the middle, you you know. That's just not playing in the real world. You're not earning your stripes. To and you, there's a there's a lifetime of lessons and practice that goes behind a professional golfer's tee shot right now. Is it damaging for our standards? I think it's just kind of reflective of society and the world we live in as in general. I mean, we live in a world of instant gratification. Now. But and now comparisons. Yeah, and comparisons. Comparisons. But like if I want something, if I want a menu or I want a recipe for a great dinner tonight, I push a button on my phone and I Google something and, and I'm, a, I'm a chef now. Right. And I've got all this great information and I can make a good dinner. Whereas, you know, growing up, my grandma had a cookbook with the, her with recipes. Her mom's hand, recipes. And- handwritten in the recipe. And uh, fishing is the same. Uh, it, it was it's it's process it's a journey and you know the trial and error and they the, the old cliche is that you, you know, first you want to catch a fish then you want to want to catch a a few fish many fish and you want to catch a big fish and you want to catch a lot of big fish 
And then at the last stage, you don't care about. Well, it's like the hardest fishing. Yeah. It's just, yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people are stuck in that wanting to catch a lot of big fish thing. And, you know, we have to be sensitive to how we pressure the resources and what we do and, and what we sacrificed for the sake of the, the tug and pulling on fish rather than the experience of earning a fish. That gets back to the quality engagement that I was talking about. I, if, I, if we could do anything, it would be to add a little bit more authenticity back into the process of learning to fish. I think that that's where our opportunity is, and it's hard to explain it. But I, and I see that in the younger generations, they they do like the experiential stuff. They want to earn things. They want to, and it, it gives me great pleasure to see that. It's, and and much more so than in my generation. Do you think that the industry is in the healthiest state that it's been in? Uh, I think there's probably more money being made. Um, I know from Trout Unlimited's perspective, we're the biggest we've ever been as a conservation organization. That's excellent. Okay, so the participants are making their way over to TU. Yeah, you know, and not so much in terms of the membership, but certainly in terms of the money. So 10, 15 years ago, TU was, you know, $10 million dollars. Uh, now we're going to be a $55 million a year organization. And 87% of that goes right into programs and fixing rivers and all that stuff. So in terms of the impact, the political sway that we have, the quality of the products, the quality of our resources, I think our rivers are in better shape by and large. All right. So can I ask you a few more questions about the industry? Yeah, please. Do you feel that you are a bit of a gatekeeper? Uh, me personally, Kirk, as a gatekeeper for the industry. Um. Yeah. You. Yeah. Okay. Uh Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I wear that as a little bit of a responsibility. I have to report accurately and honestly. And, and I think you're a great gatekeeper for it, by the way. Well, thank you. I think if if anyone's going to be one of the gatekeepers, I think you're a perfect candidate. I try to be pretty straightforward and honest and and fair. I feel like you're fair. Fair. fair thank you. Fair is a really important thing. Um. I don't. You know, there have been, I've had battles with everybody, like, and not in a mean way, but like if uh, a company was doing something that I thought was hosing the dealers, I, I would say it. And I'd tell the dealers that. On the other hand, if a company does something that is great, I'll, I'll say that too. After the trade organization, I think is, is on a high. They're doing a good job now. I think this show being back in Denver is a real good move. They've had some tough times. We've battled over some things in the, in the past, and I've been a watchdog. But you know, I think we're in a, in a comfortable spot now, and they know that uh, I'm going to call it like it is and uh, try to be fair. You wrote an article some time ago that called it like it is. Yeah, and it got everyone all worked up. Can you can you for the listener just explain what you'd said in your article? This was the I think the. Was it this, the one this summer where I was talking about pro deals? Mm -hmm. A really long one? Yep. <laughs> yeah, so I got my friend Charlie Craven, who owns Charlie's Fly Box here in Colorado. Uh, he had somebody walk into his shop and say, hey, uh, I want to try on these waders. I'm going to get a pro deal from my buddy, but I want to see what size I, I wear. And Charlie said, gee, you know what? No, uh, you can't try on these waders. And what's in it for me? You're going to do that. And, 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 and there's been an onslaught, and a lot of dealers have said that they've had people come in and say they're a pro, 
and then you know put the boots on first before trying to pull the waders over them. You know they don't know anything about fishing, and that was a sore sensitive subject. And so I, and I know that companies make a lot of money doing the pro deals, and I know younger people especially don't have disposable seven hundred dollars to buy a pair of waders, and I didn't when I was that age and if I could get them for half price I would mine were hand-me-downs yeah right my neoprenes anyway right yeah but there are ways around that you know we need to maybe maybe look at what pros really are pros or personalize rods so that they got your name on it so they don't show up on eBay, eBay. Mm, I've heard about this right yep Zot's the warranty for a lifetime warranty for something that's transferred from one person to another you know make really enforce that uh, original owner's warranty. Have shops come up with a list or designate who's a pro and who's not so that uh, you know they'll vouch for and then the, the, material, the things that are ordered go to the shops themselves and then they get meted out that way. But what makes a pro? I mean, once upon a time, being a pro is, they, they would ask you, how many days are you on the water? That's right. They wanted you to be a guide whose boots fell apart. Right. That was a pro because right. they could provide feedback and send in their old boots. Now, it's it feels like... Uh, like things have changed. Well, that's right. Well, what was the original intent? And media is the same, right? They they would ask, how big is your audience? So if I got a rod and I said nice things about it in front of uh, 4 million people who read Field, Field and Stream magazine, that was worth the few hundred bucks that it cost them to make that rod and send it to me. And um, now, you know, someone's a says they've got an audience, says they've produced something, they've got a logo, they can call up a website and show them, hey, I'm the subject. No one knows for sure, but uh, that's watered things down. So a lot of the companies, instead of just giving you the product, will put you on their pro deal. So everybody's got the same thing. And guides, in the guide world, what better advertisement for the pair of waiters that I want to buy than what a guy who does this, or a woman who does this for a living does every day. They're they're a walking billboard. Guys are the ones who who should be on pro staff, in my my opinion. But now everybody is a guide. I've heard, I've heard like some companies derive, you'd be shocked by how much of their total revenue comes through pro sales. Like 30, 40% or more through pro sales. Okay, so it's not... The money that the, I mean, the audience that the pros are bringing in, it's the pros themselves buying their gear. Right. Got it. Because they're well, still but, making. But there's some more, more pros. So like in 1995, what, there are a thousand pros. But today, what if we had a hundred thousand pros? Right. Just for people listening who haven't read the article, what was your. Well, I, I offered, I said, hey, well, first of all, we, we need to talk about it. Let's let's get it out there. Let's not make this the, the skeleton the in the closet yeah. or the <laughs> elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. And I, it was amazing the amount of outpouring. I, I got a lot of attaboys from the fly shop owners who would call me or write me or send me an email and say, thanks, thank you for talking about this. And that's that's the most important. That's the praise that I live for the most because it, it's affecting their business, it's affecting, and it shows that we're effective as what we're doing as a, a magazine or a media company, and that, that's really important to me. So the conclusions were, A, we're going to talk about it. B, I threw out several possible solutions, like I just said, you know, put people's names on pro products, make them different colors so that when, you know, the guy who's obviously not a pro shows up at the boat ramp with a rod that is 
the purple rod of the pros and can't cast more than 15 feet, everyone will know that he's not a pro and that something's rotten in Denmark. But the scary thing today is that these people are, a lot of them who can't cast 15 feet are considered pros. That's right, because they're, you know, whatever, ambassadors or they've got enough of a Instagram following and so forth. That's cool. I mean, that's, it is what it is. Um, but I think it's somewhat of an insult and, and it's hurtful, I think, for some of the real pros that I've spoken with to, to, to not, you know. And the, the funny thing is, is that I remember when I was breaking into the business, and we talked a little bit about that earlier, but I was jonesing to get, I mean, the, the coolest thing in the world was that I could get my press card and I would get like pro deal on rods and reels and stuff. And then by the time I started working in the industry, I realized that the pro deal is really just kind of like having dental insurance. It's just like, it's like a perk of the job, but it's, it's, it, you'd go broke. I would go broke if I had to buy every rod at full price and so forth if that I wanted to test and write about. And uh, so it's, it's an, it's an important thing. Um, and it's, it's not that big of a deal for a, a real working pro to get pro stuff. One thing that's for sure wrong is if you are a pro, we can argue what makes you a pro or not. And that's, again, I'm not trying to badmouth somebody who's working hard and trying to break in, in the industry and and, more, and more you can argue it back to, I mean, you can argue it back to my beginning. You can argue right. it back to anyone's beginning. Right. Right. Everyone has to start somewhere. More, more power to you. That's, that's awesome. But it's, it's, it is not cool to buy your buddy a pair of boots and you know, have him go into the local fly shop to find out what size they are and then hose that fly shop. That's just not cool. No. It's not acceptable on any level, I don't think. What about deals with, like, for, for my few first few years, my pro deal was the shop. So I was a yeah. customer at Michael and & Young and at Fred's Custom Tackle. Yeah. And they gave me, you know, a guide discount. Yeah. But to me, that was kind of my pro deal. And everyone was happy. Yeah. Everyone was selling stuff. I mean, I still didn't have the money to buy the, the volume of, of items that I wanted. But I didn't need that much stuff. Well... Put it this way: What who if, needs ten rods a year? It's like it's ridiculous. That's right. And, and if you if you, if you're giving them away, it's even worse, right? And and what if the manufacturer and the dealer? If you, if you're the manufacturer and you want a relationship with the fly shop with the dealer, you should share that burden equally, right? So if it's going to be a fifty percent discount, twenty five percent of it's the dealer. The fly shop, 25% of it's the manufacturer. Right now, that all 50% is on the shoulders of the dealer. And so if, you share, if they share the burden equally, they make a little less money, but they still make some money. And maybe the manufacturer just covers their cost. But that will force them to be very, very prudent about who they include and who they don't. And it'll maybe make that channel that might be 100,000 people back to a couple thousand people. Maybe that's not what they want to do. I think a lot of them are over that point of no return where they can't, couldn't do that if they wanted to. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to still talk about it as long as the fly shops are there. And you know, I'm I, my magazine exists to help them out. We're going to talk about it. So that's my two cents, and that was my conclusion. Was that the most contentious article that you've ever written? You know, I didn't think it would be, but I think it probably turned out to be. Yeah. And I got a lot of calls from my friends in the manufacturing side too. Yeah, what were your biggest criticisms? Uh no, you know, someone said, you know, "Boy, you really opened the wound there." You're, you know, but it's, it's like 
people are going to talk about that anyway. So what, let's channel the discussion in a productive direction mm-hmm. so that we can have some conclusions, so we can have some dialogue. And it's going on in the, at the show floor right now. Right. And it will go on after. And, and I think that that's all positive stuff. Then um, the manufacturers, a lot of them are under such pressure to produce such results and grow their business and sa- satisfy their shareholders or their owners or whomever. And so they're they're jamming as hard as they can. They're and they're turning over every stone and got to credit them for the, an innovative approach that works. And if it's it's if it's a channel that makes them a lot of money, okay. But you need to be honest with the other people who are part of your distribution channels and um, include them in the discussion. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna fire me or if you're gonna if I'm working for somebody, you're gonna fire me. Just tell me I'm not needed anymore. Downsize me or whatever. Yeah. But be honest with me. Don't don't hire somebody behind my back and have them sitting at my desk on Monday morning right. without talking to me on Friday. Do you have a, a boss as such right now? Are you a contractor? No, I, I'm an employee of Trout Unlimited, so I I'm I report to Chris Wood, the CEO. So technically, yes, he's my boss. Is that who you were speaking with yesterday at the show? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I he was. seems like a really nice guy. He is. He is. No, I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, he's a good guy. I like I like working with him. He's got a good vision. I I kind of um, I'm lucky because I do come at this from having been in the industry so long. I kind of joined Trout Unlimited. Just did, I got to a point where the conservation was really important to me. Um, but I you know, I've kind of been a gun for hire and. A, solo shooter so to speak and i work with tim romano he's been my partner for all these 15 years with angling trade but i i i don't want this to sound disrespectful but i don't necessarily you know march to the drumbeat of the corporation or all the time and i like to have a little bit of independence and free thought and it's important for me to have my own brand as an author and my own reputation and there are some times that i disagree with things that my own organization does and I won't list them out publicly now, but you know, I, I'm a, and I think that what Chris has done for me and the organization that they've allowed that to, to go. And, and it's a place where we do exchange ideas and we are candid with each other. And we have, trust me, we, wake, we, none of us wake up in the morning these days worrying about what we're going to do to keep busy because you know, the clean water rule is under assault. The mining things that we've talked about are, are happening all over the country. Yeah, what's your biggest focus right now? I would say it's clean water rule. For sure, that's going to be a tough slog to put that back together. Uh, the way it w- does protect the ephemeral streams that's so important to fly fishing, specifically trout fishing. Um, mind, you know, I think low-hanging fruit is the abandoned mine cleanup. We can do that. There's light at the end of that tunnel, but it's going to take a lot of work. Pebble mine is is one we're in it, do or die. That that we're gonna stay in that fight till we win or die trying. And public access rears its ugly head. You know, people who want to sell off public lands, federal lands. I've got Land Tawny on today at one. Yeah, well, he'll talk about that, and they do a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you work in, with those guys? Well, they're they're kind of a brother sister organization for us, so we feel good about. All the work that, I'm a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers as well, so love the work that they do. And you know, TU does different things on different scale. Them getting engaged with the crowd that they appeal to, and getting younger people, and getting people motivated about the public lands debate is awesome. 
we do we do some of that as well, but we also we're the what differentiates to you, I think, is that we actually get in the rivers, right? So when rocks get rolled and dams get pulled out and things like that happen, we have the scientists and and the boots in the water, right, coast to coast that are doing that. So I think it's important for any angler to support all the organizations. Yeah, because everyone trust me, the challenges are so big. There's enough to go around for all these non-government organizations and, and conservation organizations to to work on. Is this so. your most challenging job so far? Yeah, you know, I think it's a challenging job. Yeah, I think I think it probably is the, the most challenging job I've had so far. But it's fun. Sometimes I wish, to be honest with you, that I could go back and write cool stories in faraway places and f- magazines, and then. On to the next story, and now I'm I'm definitely in more boardrooms and on conference calls and stuff like that. But you know, I think I also think that we're affecting positive change, so I'm not just entertaining anymore. Yeah, I know you're right. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, because your career before was pretty much an entertainer. Yeah, yeah, but now with angling trade, I'm more of an advocate, and I advocate for Trout Unlimited. And those are important things. I, I believe in the fly community on all, all the businesses in fly fishing. And I believe that none of it happens. None of it's possible if we don't have healthy water. What would you like to, the young people listening to consider as far as their own actions go in the sport? And not, not the industry. I think that's a, you know, that's a different conversation. Yeah. In the, in the sport, what would you like to see them do to try to give back a little bit? Uh, well, I think that they should find a, a conservation organization that they can take part in and it doesn't need to be your money. You don't have to open up your wallet, but if you can spend an afternoon picking up stuff on the side of a river or helping us to make some phone calls to your elected officials or to tell them that you care about the outside, uh, that's important to be engaged that would be my number one thing. And then on the fishing side, I would say try something completely new. I feel like actually I'm kind of eating my words. I feel like the young people do this. Is they it do. is it the older people who we might need a little more participation from? Are you noticing there's more of one than the other or is it a pretty even spread? No, I think that I think that the older generations are often more apathetic or, or tied to their wallets. The younger ones are, definitely motivate me. A lot more. I try. Funny thing is, is that believe it or not, I was 30 once and was hard charging and wanted to do this in the sport and wanted to write these stories and wanted to. And it, and unfortunately, it takes time to build your audience and your credibility and all that. And then you wake up and you realize, gee, I'm 53. I, I am one of those old people that I used to criticize. Sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, that's okay. You know, I've, I've kind of found comfort in that and that. Uh, the the younger folks who are getting into the sport are going to find that, and I wouldn't dissuade them one bit from charging hard and trying to experience it all and soak it all in and go for it. And I'm totally proud of you and hopeful and will be helpful, all that. But you'll realize when you get to this age that it's the process, and you are just by hours on the river and hours in the water and so forth, you become more seasoned, and it's a good thing. It's a, it's a comforting thing. It's not something to be afraid of. 
Is there anything that I've missed about you or your career? I mean, there's obviously a lot <laughs> that you've done, but is there anything in particular that you wanted to focus on here? Uh, no, I, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to write for different places, written for Wired magazine, I've written for out, you know, the, the outdoor stuff across the gamut of all the fly fishing. It's fun to see that and go back and kind of have a little library of where you've been and and it's like a, a, like a photo album of your life sometimes but it's in under magazine covers and and uh, it's kind of it's been an interesting journey all along i like uh thinking about where some of these stories came from oftentimes the best part of the reading a story is remembering what happened behind the scenes and who I was with. And I, the, the other thing I would say is the more I write about fishing, the more I realize that the fish are just incidental actors in that thing. It's not about the fish. Fishing is not about fish. It's about the people that you meet and at the places that you see and the experiences that you have and the conversations that you have and the triumphs and the failures and the miles you roll. All those things are what make fishing special. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 